Previously on American Jihadi. We're waiting for the enemy to come. We'll try to blow up as many of their vehicles as we can and kill as many of them as we can and take everything they got, honey, Michelle. <laughs> the minute we heard the voice, we knew that it was Omar. This is the guy that everybody knows is Abu Mansur al-Amriki, but I know him as Omar Hamami because that's the guy who I grew up with. I record this message today because I feel that my life may be endangered. What went wrong? Because you were a smart kid, and I still believe that you're incredibly smart. Do you really believe all this, this stuff? Because part of me doesn't really think that he does. That's what I need to find out from him. There was a way the story about Omar Hamami got told. U.S. prosecutors say this is the new face of terror. In the story, Omar was a kind of riddle. On the one hand, he was a totally normal American kid. A U.S. citizen from Daphne, Alabama. Where he once attended a Baptist church. High school and played on the soccer team. The privileged life of an American child. School pageants, sports teams, prom day. But on the other hand, he was a terrorist. Before converting to a radical form of Islam and began, in his words, pointing a sword at the United States. Without enough hard information to solve the riddle Omar posed, most coverage kept circling back to the same small collection of details about his life. And to maybe the most bizarre part of his story, the fact that Omar wasn't just a kid from Alabama waging jihad, but that he was rapping about it from the front lines. Omar Hamami, who uses internet videos and rap songs to attract... And recruits young terrorists with propaganda video and hip-hop music. Now you realize Islam can't be beat. While in our land, don't even think about peace. We love to slaughter crusader enemies, catch them in an ambush and watch them freeze. As propaganda for al-Shabaab, Omar made what I can only describe as jihadist music videos. Fighters running in slow motion holding AK-47s and grenade launchers. At the front of the line, his camouflage cap backwards, his fatigues tucked into his combat boots, is Omar. Blow by blow, crime by crime, only gonna add to my avenging rhymes. Invasion by invasion, attack by attack. I had tried once before to tell Omar's story when I made my documentary about him. But now I had something that no journalist had ever had before. Direct access to Omar himself. For the first time, there was a chance that someone could make all the confusing pieces of Omar's story fit together into a single picture. Something that went past a portrait of the rapping jihadi. I was excited that the world was finally going to hear that version of his story. And that I was going to be the one to tell it. Flow by flow, I love you Muslim bro. Sell this life for endless happiness tomorrow. I'm Christoph Putzel. This is American Jihadi. Episode 2, The Exclusive. Now that we were under encryption, Omar emailed me several times a day. He had also sent me the 127-page autobiography he had written, The Story of an American Jihadi. In both, he painted a very different picture of his life in al-Shabaab than the one he glorified in his rapping. This is my producer, Brent Renault, reading from Omar's book. Brothers were left to fend for themselves, having no maps, no money, no source of food, and no source of water. Some brothers were forced to drink urine and eat the roots of plants. Some were forced to eat maggots and snails. The first 40 pages of his book told the part of Omar's story I mostly already knew. His childhood in Daphne, Alabama, 
and then at 19 to Canada, then to Egypt, and finally to Somalia as a 21-year-old. What was new was his description of his life once he got to Somalia. I reported there myself shortly before Omar arrived in 2006. I was making a documentary about a new Islamic government that had taken power after 15 years of anarchy. I filmed the first flights to land in Somalia's capital, Mogadishu, after they reopened the airport. These are some of the first flights landing here in 15 years. Everyone's coming back to their homeland. It's incredible. There was a single runway served by a small terminal badly damaged by the war. It was here that Omar landed, three months after I left. I walked up to the immigration booth and I smiled and I gave them my passport. When I saw the man's beard, I half expected him to hug me and shoot some bullets in the air. Instead, he told me they can only accept people with a visa. My heart dropped. The new Islamic government had done more than set up immigration controls. They'd also succeeded in bringing the first real order to Mogadishu after more than a decade of civil war. But while the fighting had finally stopped, the establishment of Islamic government was seen as a potential threat by the U.S., and especially by Somalia's predominantly Christian neighbor, Ethiopia. So with American backing, the Ethiopian military began preparing to invade Somalia. In the classical interpretation of the Quran, jihad is defined as the obligation of Muslim men to defend Islam against attack by non-believers. That was why Omar had come to Somalia, to do what he saw as his duty to fight to protect the Islamic government. He managed to talk his way past the immigration officials, and in short order, to the group that would become al-Shabaab. We got on the trucks and we pulled out of Mogadishu to the sound of Alu Akbar, which was being chanted by us and even by the normal people we were passing on the roads as we left the city. In Omar's telling, Somalia at first was exactly what he was looking for. We would lie there staring at the stars while one of the brothers sang Nasheeds. Other times, we would explain our stories of making hijra and how we were so blessed to leave the land of the disbelievers. In short, it was the dream of any Muslim who has the love of the religion burning in his heart. Almost immediately, Omar was handed an AK-47. I felt like I'd just been given an atomic bomb that might blow at any second. I had no idea how to use the thing. Training was brutal. There was glass on the ground and we were told to walk on our fists while someone held our feet in the air, like a wheelbarrow. A lot of Shabab fighters were poor teenagers without better options. Al-Shabab means the youth in Arabic. Their ragtag militia served as the military wing of Somalia's Islamic government. Their sole purpose? To defend against the Ethiopian invasion and other rival factions within the country. Everyone was ordered to prepare to go to the front to help the brothers who had begun the Battle of Adale. The Ethiopians quickly ousted Somalia's Islamic government, but al-Shabaab kept fighting. Omar's story of his life in Somalia is full of the chaos and confusion of war. A man appeared on the road in front of me. He was to be the first of a trickle that turned into a flood. Some were injured, some in shock. Some had just become zombies that kept up a steady stagger back to Jalib. Omar's book also made clear the connection between al-Qaeda and al-Shabaab, and even between al-Qaeda and Omar. During this short stay in Jalib, Fazul appeared, along with almost everyone else from the Shabab. Fazul was Fazul Muhammad, the head of al-Qaeda in East Africa, and the alleged mastermind of the bombings of the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania in 1998. The State Department had put a $5 million bounty on him. According to Omar's autobiography, Fazul had made it a point to question the young American when he first landed in Mogadishu, though Omar hadn't known who he was at the time. 
When he saw me, he remembered our encounter in the airport and said through a big smile, So you're still here. In the years since that meeting with Fazul, something had clearly gone very wrong for Omar. Where once he had been Al-Shabaab's spokesman and prize recruit, now he was almost completely isolated. In his emails to me, he described how he was now in hiding. Right now I live in an empty house with internet. I don't leave except on rare occasions when the streets are dead to go use the phone. No one sees me but the brother I trust to bring me bread, beans, and sugar. In his messages to me, Omar kept insisting that for people who knew how to read it, his autobiography would be a bombshell. There were parts that would hint at a huge rift within Al-Shabaab, and he seemed to hope that calling attention to it might help keep him alive. His emails kept coming back to that idea. Let's put it this way. If people start conveniently disappearing, but no one ever talks about it, wouldn't it continue? Let's say someone looks deeper into things and comes out with it. Wouldn't it be an obstacle for it to continue happening? I believed Omar when he said that he was in danger of being killed, but I couldn't make any sense of the clues he said his book contained, and no matter how many times I asked him to explain, he never would. Don't ask me anything about the current situation or anything indicating a rift between me and the Shabab. I don't intend to blast them about anything, but I may give hints in my own way. A part of me wondered if the real reason Omar reached out to me was about trying to find a way to escape whatever situation he was in in Somalia. I asked him if he was thinking about turning himself in to U.S. authorities. Of course not. I might consider it after my heart stops pumping and my lungs stop breathing. I didn't leave America for a thrill ride with the hopes of finding a get-out-of-jail-free card at the end of the boardwalk. Why would I trade my life of honor with my weapons by my side for a life of humiliation and torture? I remember thinking how his answer was wasted, because he wrote it in an email instead of saying it while a camera was recording. I was a TV reporter. For me to tell the kind of story I wanted about Omar, I needed to get off the computer and actually go back to Somalia, to the empty house where he was hiding, to interview him face to face. But Omar said that was impossible. I really think you have a death wish. It's either that, or you are incredibly naive about the Shabab. I can't even travel without being hassled. And I'm supposed to be the poster boy. Omar's worries were at least as much about himself as they were about me. Me meeting up with you wouldn't look good in the current situation. People are looking for excuses to get me out of the way. To kill him, he meant. I asked if Omar would do a Skype interview. No. If he could record video of himself answering questions. No. Audio. No. The YouTube video he'd put out saying his life was in danger might have bought him some time, but it also pissed off Al-Shabaab and Omar didn't want to fan the flames. Anything audio or video in nature will be viewed as political escalation. You're just going to have to trust me. The more info I give you, the more possibilities for more danger. Sorry, man, but let's make the best of it. Omar knew how to keep me on the hook, though. So long as I can stay alive, we'll be able to do more things in the future. Even you coming if things become suitable on the ground. For now, Omar wanted me to focus on figuring out how to get his autobiography the most possible attention. I need the full thing to go online. There are subtle nuances that I included in the bio as a kind of riddle. I can't say them openly because of the backlash, but I don't want the hints to be lost. Omar didn't really want me to report on his autobiography. He just wanted me to publish it so that someone somewhere could crack the code. This is the proposed plan of action that you may review. You put the document up with relevant clips from your documentary at the appropriate places. You mentioned that this is an exclusive of Vanguard. And he wanted me to do it fast. 
Let's get this show on the road. What is our action plan and how soon can this thing get out? I told Omar that Current TV wasn't in the publishing business, especially since on top of the ethical issues it raised, putting up his book ourselves could be considered aiding and abetting. The Patriot Act had made it a felony to provide material support to a terrorist. So Omar floated a different plan. He'd post his book online himself and simply tip me off as to when and where so I could have the exclusive. And maybe I could make another trip to Daphne, Alabama to film his parents reacting to it in real time. If you get my mom on TV, that would be something new. Even if you got my sister. You could get them to read passages of the bio in their own voices. It wasn't exactly sitting down with Omar, but I had been trying to interview his parents for years. So I got ready for one more trip to Alabama. I would tell you to kiss my mom for me, but that might be abetting a terrorist. I flew from L.A. to Mobile, Alabama, and then made the short drive to Omar's hometown of Daphne. It had been two years since the trip here when Omar's dad kicked me off their porch. All right, so I'm on my way right now to Omar's parents' home here in Daphne, Alabama, and I'm gonna let them know that I've been communicating with their son the past couple weeks on a daily basis. Omar's parents hadn't heard from him in six years. He'd cut off contact because he didn't want to get them in trouble with the authorities. I assumed their phones were tapped by the FBI, so I hadn't told them I was coming until after I landed. I called them once from my hotel, then again on the drive to their house. Hi, Shafiq, it's Kristoff. I'm on my way over. I should be there in about uh, 10 minutes. All right, I'll see you shortly. Omar's father, Shafiq, met me at the door. His beard was dark brown, turning white. He looked like he hadn't slept. Hi, Shafiq. Good to see you. I took my place on the sofa across from Omar's parents sitting in their matching recliners. His mother, Deborah, had a warm, round face framed by short brown hair. She wore a blue cardigan and around her neck a thin chain with a silver pendant that Omar had given her. At first, Shafiq did most of the talking. Since he left this country in 2006, I was not able to get any information about him except what I hear or read in the media. That makes it very, very difficult. Every day, Deborah and Shafiq went online to learn what they could about Omar's situation. This month, for the third time, they read reports that he had been killed. You know, we went through last year with him, you know, saying that he had died. And my family came and, um, brought food and, you know, we went through that and and we were talking about, you know, we wouldn't have a body to bury. So I talked to my brothers and they were like, we'll just get a picture of Omar and we'll bury him by Papa at the cemetery. And so I thought, well, God, we're just going to take it one day at a time. And then we're so low and then all at once, It's like, he's alive, he's alive, he's not dead. And it's like, it's kind of like a roller coaster. But I'm like... For a half hour, I sat with his parents, feeling the weight of their grief, waiting for the exact time Omar told me he'd post his biography online. 
finally, his post went live. This is his autobiography. He's describing his, his life up until going to Somalia and then his life in Somalia. But a lot of this, I think, will look very familiar because you know him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can s- scroll, you know, your page numbers and, and you can just scroll down like this or click on different pages. Would you mind reading the second paragraph out loud? There, this one. One thing my father taught me that really stuck in, and shaped who I am is to be a person of virtue and honor. He once told me, Omar, you have nothing in this life but your word. Remember that. I have always held that advice very high and tried not to be seen as a liar or someone who betrays his word and principles. My dad was big on principles. Do you remember that conversation with him? Yes. Yeah. I do. I always told him to just be a man of honor and stick to his principles. While Shafiq read, Deborah stood over his shoulder, her eyes glued to the screen, sometimes smiling, sometimes crying, sometimes mouthing the words. It was as if I had handed them an old T-shirt Omar had slept in that they could hold to their noses and breathe in his smell. Deborah, would you mind reading this out loud? Read this out loud? The whole thing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. I left the land for the sake of Allah, and I hope that the deed is accepted from me. What I would like, though, is to have a three-day visit to see my mom, my dad, and my sister. I'd like to make a round of the restaurants and get some Chinese food, some hot wings, some Nestle's ice cream, and some gourmet coffee. I think for the whole three days, I would probably freak out just seeing paved roads and riding around without having to hold on for dear life. I always think about how my mom and dad used to care so much for our education and how they would always come to our soccer games and take us out for the movies. I often wonder what the whole experience has done to them. So how is it for you reading that? I'm just so thrilled he still remembers us and all that good stuff we did. I knew that legally I couldn't pass them any messages from Omar. But after sitting with them for an hour, it was a struggle not to tell them something of what I knew. I can't show you that it, our interactions. Um, I can't show you specifics. Um, but I, have, I, I did ask him if he had any plans to surrender or turn himself in to uh, authorities. And he said no. He does not seem to be looking for uh, to wave a white flag and mm-hmm. try to um, uh, somehow surrender or come back or ask for amnesty. Uh, he is not planning to do any of that. Uh, sorry to report that. Shafiq asked if I saw any hope for Omar. Anything that you can surmise, say any light in the end of the tunnel for him? He doesn't know, and I don't know. Um, I keep talking for more than a minute, 
like I said, the details of his situation that he's currently in are not something he's been uh, uh, very forthcoming about. Um, but I didn't have an answer for what Omar's parents really wanted to know. Will our son survive? So, you know, he's a savvy guy, but I don't think he would have reached out to me if it wasn't serious. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just my interpretation. I think that um, he's got something in the back of his mind. Does that give you any reassurance? Not really. I left Shafiq and Deborah to file my story from a TV studio near Mobile. How did Omar Humami, a kid raised in Alabama, surrounded by McDonald's and Chick-fil-A's, become an Islamic terrorist? I had a spot that night in one of current TV's new shows, Viewpoint with Elliot Spitzer. The documentarian Christoph Putzel was contacted recently by Humami, who now, now goes by the name Abu Mansour al-Amriki and fears for his life. Hi, Elliot. You know, it's a very bizarre twist in this tale that Current's been covering for the past two years. I sat down with his parents this morning and... uh, I don't know how many people saw the story that night, but I know that somewhere in an empty house in Somalia, Omar found the clip online. He emailed me that night. I saw the highlight of my mom reading, and I couldn't stop crying for a good five minutes. It wasn't material support to a terrorist. But it gradually dawned on me that I had done everything Omar wanted. Maybe I hadn't published his autobiography myself, but I had certainly brought it attention. And by following his plan, I had let him maneuver me into creating the closest thing he was going to get to a reunion with his parents. My dad looks like my grandfather now. They became so old and they look so tired of all this. I pray God makes them firm and guides them. Did you cry? Did my dad? He looked pissed, but inwardly moved. My dad doesn't show emotions well. Omar went on to praise me for how I had talked about him. You answered well on the Spitzer show, despite his attempts to direct you into a box and start railing on me as a terrorist. You did very well, as a matter of fact, and I was happy with it all. What a good job I had done getting his story out there. I'd say it's an overall success. How well the bargain he and I had made with each other was working out. For both of us. Tons of people, NBC or something like that, along with lots of blogs, are asking for interviews. I told them, Omar only communicates with Putzel. American Jihadi is produced by Endeavor Audio and 222 Productions. It's hosted and executive produced by me, Christoph Putzel, of Hidden Door Media. Our producers are Julia Botero and Zach Hirsch, with help from Pallavi Katamasu and Ashley Cleek. Our senior producer is Brent Renault. Our editor is Keith Romer. Our managing producer is Samantha Allison. This episode was mixed by Hannes Brown with sound design by Hannes Brown and Zach Hirsch. Business Affairs, Shoshana Jakobov. Fact-checking by Laura Bullock. Executive producers include Adam Levine, Josh Gummersall, and Adam Harrison of 222 Productions, Dave Easton of Endeavor Audio, and Jonathan Hirsch of Neon Hum Media. Coming up on American Jihadi. You couldn't, like, 
tease him because he would get like mad easily. He had to have that recognition that he excelled above everybody. The inquisitive Omar was asking questions. He started struggling internally by himself. Do you think I'm some wicked, bloodthirsty madman? Or some naive, lost little boy? <laughs> 